on okay they're all on let's go see what we can find I hope there's something here for you guys I haven't listened to it yet um, I saw it the other day and I thought I want to give this a try so here we go this is SSP it was outside of um, the normal SSP area. The future of bio-enhanced super soldiers. Okay, that's what it's called. And I'm getting a um, buffering going on, which is normal whenever I Another episode of Military.com's flagship podcast, Left of Boom. I'm Hope Hodge-Sec, managing editor for news and your host on this show. Steve Rogers was just an ordinary young man who tried to enlist to fight in World War II, but was turned away due to health problems. Until that is, he was approached by a Defense Department scientist who injected him with a special serum that turned him into the perfect specimen of military strength and stamina. That's right, I'm talking about Captain America. Okay, it's it's buffering again. You want to taste it? Come here. Come on, you can taste it if you want. When Marvel's beloved comic book hero was first introduced in 1941, such a biological upgrade was strictly in the realm of fiction. But now, Captain some say America. it's the next chapter in warfare, and one that will be here sooner than you might think. The field of biological enhancements for the warfighter encompasses everything from dietary supplements and neural stimulation to bionic limbs and brain augmentation. And it raises a horde of new questions about ethics in the military and society. Increasingly, the dominant questions on the threshold of military technological development are becoming not what can we do, but what should we do, and what happens if we go too far. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Peter Emanuel, U.S. Army Senior Scientist for Bioengineering, and Dr. Diane Giulis, Senior Research Fellow at National Defense University. In 2019, they co-authored a paper on the cyborg soldier the result of a Secretary of Defense Red Team Task Force exploring the future of man-machine enhancements in the warfighter of 2050. Doctors Emmanuel and Dulles, welcome to the show. Welcome, thanks for having us. Thank you. First of all, this paper looks ahead to 2050. That's only 30 years in the future, and that's not a lot of time necessarily when it comes to the military. 30 years ago, in 1990, Five of our current 11 aircraft carriers had already been in commission for decades. All of our current bombers were flying, and the M1 Abrams tank and Marine Corps amphibious assault vehicle were driving around just as they are today. But you described some really leap-ahead biological technologies in this paper. What were your foundational assumptions, and what drove your predictions about what's ahead for individual warfighters in this regard by 2050? Dr. Emmanuel, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, it's a great question, and you're talking about technologies that were um, in place 30 years ago, and how is it that we, uh, our study 
shows such a, a fundamental change in, in such a short amount of time. And so technology is accelerating and we are entering the fourth industrial revolution, this biological revolution. Um, and we're seeing the convergence of technologies in micro in microelectronics, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and automation. And so that technology is happening so fast and that convergence really adds to it. But to some extent, we're, we've already seen the integration of man and machine over many years. The use of defibrillate, uh, of pacemakers, to some extent, um, we're already really seeing uh, mankind becoming more intimate with technology. Uh, just case in point, when was the last time you really left the house without your cell phone? So some of our studies showed that, you know, some, some authors that have done some groundbreaking work really actually referred to us as infant cyborgs. Hmm, well... That's a great that's a great lead in by Peter um, to start this discussion. I think also in thinking about um, this workshop that we wanted to have and the study we wanted to do, um, as Peter noted, you know, technology is throughout our lives at this point, um, and technology has been involved in medicine um, and therapeutics for a while. And I think part of what we wanted to do also with this workshop was get at some ground truth, actually. Um, you know, what's hype, what's real, um, what's, um, what can we expect, what's, you know, potentially, what are we potentially going to see um, in the real world for the military in this, in this time frame, as opposed to sort of, you know, what you might see in the movies or what you might see in science fiction. We want to get some ground truth. And so, I, and, and so I think our study did that pretty well. So if you, if you look at the study, Hope, what the Department of Defense likes is to know what, what's coming. Uh, the, the senior leadership hates surprises. And so they've got uh, groups of subject matter experts they assemble. And, and actually, we're what, what's called a red team. In the military, you have a blue team and you have a red team. And the blue team's job is to make sure that you use technology to, to really make the job as effective as possible. The red team's job is to actually think like the enemy or think like the threat. And, and so our group was specifically assembled. Uh, it included scientists and engineers, military and civilian. And um, they actually asked us, they said, all right, look, we want you to assemble the best minds. We want you to take a year and we want you to tell us we know that man and machine is coming together. We see this cyborg future, um, but we don't know what it means. And um, we know that by the time the technology gets here, if we don't move now, we're not going to be ready. So a group of us assembled, um, and uh, we set to, to really address you know, uh, a couple fundamental questions. And so the study is the output from that effort. We wanted to know where technology was going, really. And um, we wanted to know what that technology was going to do to the organization itself. And then we wanted to know what to do to prepare for that potential future. And that's, that's a lot to, to really do. And we struggled with how to assemble that. And ultimately, we came up with a really interesting strategy. Um, we assembled uh, some study questions. And then we conducted a workshop in which we brought everybody together. And they looked at that 75% solution. And then they, they ripped it apart and they commented. And then after that, we pulled together the full study. And so what you're seeing is really, uh, we did site visits, we did readings, then we had this, this colloquium, we brought everybody together, and then 
that's the report that you see in front of you. And what it does is it structured things into the first thing we did is is we, we wanted to understand what technology might look like. And we're like, well, there's so many things, right? Sure. So we're like, yeah. all right, look, let's pick four different scenarios or vignettes. And we'll cover the waterfront, but it's just something that's a little different. And we're like, well, how do you pick? And so we're like, all right, well, how would the military leaders pick what they might adopt? And we realized that we based it on capabilities. When you think about a soldier, you think about what they can do, not what the technology is. And so we came up with nine of them. So the most important being situational awareness, what's going on, strength and speed, number two, imaging and sight, being able to perceive what's out there, communication, our ability to share information, uh, physiology, endurance, sleep, health, control of virtual avatars of technology outside of your body, our attention and memory, learning, and finally sense of smell and olfaction. So, and, and from that, we picked four vignettes. And from that, all the discussion came. So I'm so eager to get right into the four major technologies you highlight in this paper. Frankly, reading it made my head explode a little bit. It's futuristic, kind of like science fiction, but specifically like dark dystopic science fiction. And the first technology that you all discuss is ocular enhancements, literally implants in the human eye that could increase awareness and analysis. Dr. Dulas, if we could start with you, can you tell me about this line of effort and why you chose to highlight it? As Peter said, because we looked at a bunch of capabilities that we thought were going to be areas where um, war fighters would want to have, um, extended enhancements. Of course, this is one of them, right? Um, visual capability is one of them. Um, the thing I find interesting about this vignette is that, um, so, so we, talked, we talked about all these cool optogenetic things, like real-time interfaces, the ability to see things in different ways and connect to technology through the human eye. But one thing I find fascinating about this um, particular vignette is that we already do enhancements on our eyes, right? And people in the military do as well. So the most simplest basic thing is we wear glasses and we wear contacts to give ourselves a better visual acuity. Um, and then we go a little beyond that, right? And you can have an operation that fixes the shape of your lens of your eye if it doesn't enable you to see with perfect acuity, right? So we've been doing those kinds of things for warfighters already. So it's just taking it to that next level and giving the application of technology to expand um, what's possible in, in the visual spectrum. Um, so Peter, I don't, know, I don't know what you think about that or what you want to add to that one. So I remember in the dis we were having, this was an interesting discussion. Diane's absolutely right. This one and, and, and one of the other vignettes, it really had to deal with the willingness of the individual to uh, adopt this enhancement. And this one's an interesting to one to lead off with because it jumps right into a very meaty issue about whether you would take somebody who had lost their sight and they would be much more willing. Hey, look, I'm blind. You can restore any semblance of vision. I'm okay with that. But then uh, we had a very deep uh, ethical conversation about what, what happens when the technology gets to a point where the ocular enhancement is superior and so uh, to the, tech, the vision that I would see. So technologically, as we advance, I only see in the visual range, but if, if the enhancement allows you to see in multiple spectra and to see a greater, uh, with greater acuity, and if somebody were to approach you and say, I have healthy eyes, and yet I, I want this enhancement, and, and, and 
that's even in a societal conversation, that's a very uh, complicated issue. Um, but in a military context, you have to ask yourself, what's the military's uh, obligation there? Or if there's, a, if there's a tactical advantage, what are the ethical implications for the DOD taking a young soldier voluntarily, but undergoing this kind of a modification? So um, it's not simply just an issue of can you and, and, and can't you, it's a will you and a won't you issue. And mm-hmm. should you and shouldn't you, uh, leading off with this, this particular vignette brings up a lot of very difficult and sticky issues right out of the gate. That's spot on, Peter. And the other thing I would say, um, and starting off with this one too, is that it brings up questions of, you mentioned, sort of the level of invasiveness, right? So this is something that we talked about, manipulations of the optic nerve itself, as opposed to just putting something in your eye to be able to see better. And so that gets into a very, you know, uh, big question about what level of invasiveness people are willing to do. But then on the other side of it, if you don't have vision, that is probably something you'd be willing to do. Um, the other issue is, do these enhancements give someone an ability, don't just augment an existing ability? Okay, I can see, you know, 2015 now instead of, you know, 2050. But it gives someone a capability that they can't, that is not normally, the eye is not capable of, right? Um, so it takes you beyond what you could normally do, not just making that better, but making it beyond something that, that is just better. Our colleague, Giovanio, actually uh, clarified it this way in, in his discussions. He said, if you are injured and you lose function and then you bring it back with a, a cyborg, that's an enhancement of that loss. But if you go beyond the normal baseline, that's an augmentation. Right. Well put. So since we're talking about this, I want to skip down the list a little bit and talk about auditory enhancement, which I think also falls into this category. You know, you at the baseline, it sounds a little bit like a next level hearing aid, but then you talk about enhancements that could even pick up what you describe as imagined speech, which sounds like mind reading. Uh, can you talk about that and what it might enable the warfighter to do? So what you're looking at right now is uh, the auditory enhancement isn't just about restoring your hearing. It's also not just about being able to echolocate and hear at much greater distance, but in effect, you're also providing yet another portal for information to flow in. And so I can be consuming uh, multiple lines of communication like an earpiece um, that is essentially filtering in through that. And so it's really not, it's not mind reading. Um, It's really just, it's layering data in a very complex fashion. And the same thing could be said for the visual in that I could theoretically layer um, all of my different kinds of information and then in my mind just swipe with my hand to the left like I was on one of an app to see all right show me all the targets show me this uh let me listen to all of my uh fighter aircraft uh, patch me in over my earpiece you know and all of this isn't with I'm not pushing buttons to do this but in my head I can just move through and be like all right I want you to filter out everything except Dr. Diane DeUlis and I want to hear where she is where and everything she's saying and so that that control over your input and your export, that's the issue. I draw all these parallels to sort of like the the Marvel superhero universe in my mind as I'm going through these things. And that that holds true of the the third of uh, 
these four technologies that you highlight. So you've got what you call optogenic body control. And it sounds like essentially a bodysuit or uniform with an implant element that can make a warfighter outperform their potential, basically. So Dr. Deulis, what exactly is this? Did I describe it right at all? And how would it work? Sure, you did. And um, so I see this, uh, again, going back to that capabilities list and how we created these vignettes. I see this vignette stemming out of a lot of um, technological things we can already do now, um, given that, you know, um, we've had um, warfighter trauma, warfighter, um, warfighters in combat for a long time now, and we've had to do a lot with musculoskeletal repairs, right, of, of wounded folks. And um, so this really stems out of a really, really rich body of research on um, connecting the musculoskeletal system to exoskeletal elements and things like that. So it goes everything from, you know, prosthetics that we want to try and um, connect to the brain um, throughout all of that. So, so really this is coming from a lot of trauma medicine and expanding into this particular um, vignette. One thing I like about this one as well is that I think the ability to perform physically um, as is sort of proposed throughout this one, but then in an enhanced way, is a very fundamental need of warfighters. And so in that way, I see this one, and Peter, you can you can say what you think about this, but I see this one as, as sort of less, should I do it or should I not do it um, from that perspective, like when we talked about the invasiveness of doing an, an, um, an ocular enhancement to the eye. Um, I see this one as a little more of, I'd be willing to put on a suit and take this enhancement and then, you know, take off the suit or, you know, however that's going to um, develop. So I saw this one as more of a fundamental basic thing that a warfighter would would like to have, uh, to be, be able to better perform physically and then be connected um, in that way. Yeah, so let me add a little bit to Diane's comments. I agree with everything she just said. So looking at this one, don't get so caught up in whether on how the bodysuit works, this one's actually happening right now. Uh, exactly. So as Diane mentioned, has a lot of injured people. And so there's a there's DARPA programs right now. And so uh, what they've been able to do is to take somebody who's lost their limb, give them a prosthetic arm, and allow them to actually control with Ooh, their mind how to, uh, to operate that. I and they, um, that. they can pick up what objects, and they can um, actually cool even be across cool the street and, and, and be linked in by Bluetooth and control this arm from afar. And so... Now, obviously, the DARPA programs—they're—they're they're, they're far cry from being able to have somebody in a in a Marvel superhero daredevil costume flipping around and running at high speed and performing these things. But um, we're at the, at the very earliest stages, and it's the natural evolution of technology. And so, what this what our group needs to do um, is, is actually think beyond where we are now, where the trends are going, and what technology is going to do in 10, 20, and 30 years. And so. You know, this is where we are today, and ultimately, we we can envision a, a way that you would you would put on a body suit and be able to restore whole or partial function to various parts of the body. And the natural evolution is is that as you uh, increase the communication between man and machine, you can create much more subtle movements, and ultimately, you could create programs that would uh, make the human body not really even need to know things. So. 
you could put that on and, and, and in the year 2050 and p- plug in a program like you're on a holodeck and be like, I want to do a, a, you know, a, a ballet routine and you've never done a day of ballet or a gymnastic routine. I want to do a backflip. And if your body is in the right receptive to it, you punch the button and you do a backflip. And so um, the possibilities there for being able to train people to do very complex tasks or are really amazing. You can restore functionality to be able to allow somebody who is a paraplegic to be able to potentially walk across the room and cook mm-hmm. dinner. So yeah. it's possible because we're now seeing that we're able to communicate between the brain and the, and the human flesh. And so as we go from a, a diode-based TI-86 Texas Instruments calculator to my iPhone, you know that happened in such a short period of time. And so remember that comment you made at the beginning, Hope, which is, how is it possible that you're talking only 30 years in the future? Right. And the and the reality is is that the iPhone wasn't even introduced until the late 2000s. I think it was 2008. And so that's such a short period of time. You know, it's something I actually do hear this bedded around in the military a little bit because you've got things like long-standing efforts to reduce uh, the combat load of the warfighter so that you're not breaking down their bodies. And you've got things like physical fitness standards, which are always a hot topic of discussion among my audience. Um, and then you've got folks saying, well, we're going to have these exosuits that are going to do jumps and flips and anything we want them to do. So is this the, the horse and wagon? Does this whole line of effort have a shelf life here? And it's, it's a really interesting conversation that I think grabs the interest of younger warfighters, especially. There's something just, this is an interesting place to insert a, a point is that there's going to be a huge commercial driver for a lot of these technologies. And this one's a perfect example. Um, the worldwide market for all of these technologies is really going to dwarf the, the, the defense uh, application space. Imagine the ability to restore functionality in somebody who's no, no longer mobile. Once that technology matures to the point where it's a viable commercial product, um, industry is going to flock there with, with investment dollars that will dwarf all of the combined military investment budgets uh, because there's so much money to be made. Yeah, I agree 100% on that, Peter. And the I, I think on both sides of it, right, there's going to be commercial interest because people will think this is cool and want to have it and be able to do things with it. Um, and, it, it, you know, there's a whole sort of entertainment value to it. Then there's a whole piece of it that has functionality like, are people going to use suits like this because they work in warehouses or on loading docks and loading platforms and it'll become like a, you know, a tool that is for, you know, work purposes. Instead of driving one of those big pallet carts, you know, you'll have this suit and you'll be able to just pick up pallets of stuff maybe. Um, and then the third piece of it is what's it doing for um, in, a, in a therapeutic way, like with elderly people with arthritis, for example, is this a mitigation and enable them to uh, walk and play sports again and do things they want to do um, despite arthritic joints. So there's a whole, I can see a whole host of applications for this technology in particular um, that crosses both commercial, entertainment, work applications, labor applications, and DOD applications. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Hope Hodge Sec, interrupting my own podcast to make sure that you're signed up for Military.com's free newsletters. We just launched a new one, At Ease, all about military entertainment news. 
can also sign up for active duty and veteran newsletters with insider information specific to your service, as well as ones focused on crucial topics like finance, jobs, and pay. Go to military.com and select login in the upper right-hand corner to register for free and get started. All right, back to the show. Okay, I do wanna to get to the final case study you bring up, which is, it does kind of intersect with some of the other things you've been talking about, uh, direct neural enhancement of the brain. So you're talking about warfighters controlling not only something like their own wired in prosthetics, but also objects and machines using their minds. Dr. Deulis, what do you envision this technology looking like? And this is something I found particularly interesting. Who might be most likely to, to get it in the military setting? Wow, that's a big question. Um, well, first let me just back up and talk about this one vignette in particular because of all the vignettes that we discussed um, throughout the study, this is the one that had the most potential as a game-changing kind of technology, um, not just for defense, but in the face of what our adversaries might be doing and how um, technology is changing our posture with our adversaries. So the other ones, we could look at those and say, yes, if our adversaries are adopting more physical enhancements, if they're adopting auditory or other kinds of enhancements, we would see these things growing apace in our militaries and, and other countries' militaries. But this is one where um, we really need to think about what are the implications of this, because we're talking about when you're looking at direct enhancements of the brain, that's a fundamental change in the behavior of human beings, right? It fundamentally changes. Go ahead, Peter. Maybe we should just describe what it is uh, very quickly, and then I want to jump back to Diane. What we're talking about is not essentially uh, just placing blunt force electrodes to stimulate neurons, but we're actually, this enhancement is the meeting of a machine and, and nerve endings at a cellular level, which mm -hmm. in effect, means that there's direct communication between one cell and another cell transferring information and that allows for a high bandwidth transfer in a two-way fashion of information between man and machine and that's not where we are right now but we're studying that and we're and, and we're making progress and once we make that breakthrough that's the that's the revolutionary not evolutionary but the revolutionary change that alters all of these technologies, really. I was going to ask you, Peter, her original question talked about who in the military would get this, and I thought you'd be better to answer that one than I would. But we did talk about an enhancement and how, how the DOD would operate, how warfighters would operate together, given that someone could be enhanced, right, in this particular way. So how does that work um, if there's a group of individuals and one of them can receive information directly into the brain on the situational awareness on they're getting data uh, that the other members of that unit are not getting right so now there has to be a level of trust there and how these operators are going to work together because this one person has this how is that person selected and do 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 individuals want to have this advancement or not and so all of those questions were things we discussed at the workshop when we talked about this particular vignette and then we talked about it in the context of what about our allies okay we if we start if at some point 2050 and beyond, you know, we have this kind of capability. Are our allies going to have that capability? What's the, how is that information shared? 
um, between militaries and so forth. Peter, you can probably speak a little bit more to that than I can. No, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, here's let's talk about this one about how it might appear on the battlefield because it, I think it, it kind of helps. Um, and we can talk about all the vignettes now. Let's just talk about operationalizing the technology. So now, in effect, you have uh, one individual who now has access to large amounts of information coming in from visual, from auditory, uh, from satellite imagery that can be directly uploaded inside their organic brain. And they're seeing and, and interpreting and chewing and, and being able to make actionable decisions based on information coming in potentially from a drone flying 20 miles away or a satellite overhead in space. And so now this person is in effect a command and control person on the move. And so right now the Department of Defense is exploring operations in a multi-domain operation battle space. And that means that um, we can expect to be contested in the air, the land, the sea, and we want to dominate. We want to, we want to essentially be able to control now, in addition to that, we are in a more expeditionary posture, which means that we're going to be fast-moving uh, units that may be cut off or constrained for periods of time. And so you're going to have a small battle group moving very fast, maybe what we call on the edge, meaning they may have intermittent loss of communication. They may not always have control of uh, the cyber. They may, And so... This now individual becomes a, a command and control system organic to that expeditionary force. And that's a game changer. It's one of the technologies that's going to allow us to dominate in a multi-domain battle space. And it's, gonna, it's one of those technologies that's going to allow us to be able to enable an expeditionary fast-moving force to, to, to have to maintain soldier lethality, maximize the protection of the unit, but really be able to operate on their own. And great potential also to impact, I think you really hit at this, the social dynamics within the military in ways that we may and may not be able to predict. So this has come up in our conversation already, that the top candidates for these enhancements may be injured or combat wounded troops who might otherwise be limited or even sidelined by their Im injuries. Can you talk a little bit more about that prediction in particular and you know how it might impact the way the, the military works socially um, well I'll start on that one I think with some of the other things that we've talked about you know with visual hearing um, musculoskeletal kinds of things you know I think in many ways again because we've got a lot of people who've been injured and have been through all kinds of um, developments in terms of prosthesis and people see those you know we see people with prosthetics all the time now I don't think they're unusual in society given that we've been at war for 20 years and these things are happening so in some ways I see that as again a natural natural progression this fourth one that we were talking about with this intensive data interface with the brain it, it's different in that regard I think um, and so from a societal perspective, I think that's the one we have to think the most about. Again, as Peter said, this is a leap. This is a it, it, this takes us to another another level. Another thing that I think is important to think about here, we, we talk a little bit about it in the study, which is the huge volumes of data that can be generated by technology interfacing with human beings. So if you're seeing things in a different way, if you're hearing things in a different way, or in this in this regard of 
the brain machine interface, there could be lots and lots of data generated by that. What do we do with that data? Um, and, and who owns that data? How is that data handled if it's data about other individuals and what they're doing? Information that we would use in a military sense, but not in a societal sense, if that makes that makes any sense to you. So, you know, if someone has an enhancement and they're walking around in society, they are a data generator. They are um, through the use of that technology. And when that data is used in a military sense, that's that's one thing. That's for defense. But how would that be used in a non-military uh, sense? My husband used to work as a civilian at one of those military issue warehouses aboard Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. So Marines, you have to give back your body armor and your helmets and turn in your weapons at the armory. You don't get to keep any of that, but you can't just give back a bionic arm or a brain implant. So what do you do? So, you know, it's interesting. Um, that's great, Ho, good point. We started out to talk about where technology might be in the year 2050, and we quickly got ourselves into a lot of very interesting conversations that we didn't expect. And and the one you bring up right there is, is one. So obviously, the, uh, the augmentation that you're gonna get when, in civilian life is gonna be tremendously different in, in, in the augmentation you're likely to get when you're in the Department of Defense. And that capability may not necessarily allow, be suitable for integration back into society. And so now you have, uh, you have this situation where you have somebody separating from military service and returning and reintegrating back into society, which we want. Not only you have the question of will you be, did you sign a contract that allows you to be downgraded in in speed or uh, strength and things of that nature? But you know clearly we're going to take the weapons off if that's something that was done. So that's a difficult thing. But also um, we were also concerned even before that as to now we have this integration for the first time of, of enhanced individuals that are operating at a performance that's above me, and now there's one person in a military unit. And, and he's just a super, or, or she can see and do these things that none of the other people can. So what does that do to unit cohesion? Um, or what does that do, what if that person is so so impactful and useful that they're like, look, we can't promote you because you're just so crucial. Um, you knew when you were augmented that we needed you in the front lines, and that person's like, I don't wanna be in, the, in, 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 in a forward position anymore, and so, Really, the first questions that the DOD has to answer that many other agencies might not is, how do we integrate these, these technologies into our population? How does that augmented population then integrate into the overall general force? And then how do those people then separate and reintegrate into the society at large? And so some of the conversations were very obvious, like I told you, but then we started to have some questions like, what if they're like, no, I don't want to. I want my brain interface, it's inside my head. And then that person, five years later, goes to the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas and wants to go into the Blackjack area. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. Talk about card counting. They, you know, yes. I mean, how does that work? Last time I went to buy a car, they're like, I don't know, I need to go back in the manager and see if that offer will work. And he comes back, he's like, my manager said, he's like, I heard everything your manager said. How do you do that? Yeah, I think, Peter, that's, that's right. And um, while you were talking, I was also thinking about when you were, you were saying if there's somebody in a unit that's um, got the, the brain-machine interface enhancement, think about the level of trust that goes, that goes along with that, right? Because 
we know we're using technology every day on a daily basis, you know, so, so I've got my cell phone here and I want to figure out how to go somewhere or I want to look at what's the traffic between here and there and how long is it going to take me and all that kind of stuff. But this is still an extant piece of technology, right? I can look at this and I can, I can determine how much I trust this thing's ability to get me where I need to go and to tell me what the world is like out there when I go there. Now imagine if it's someone, a person, who's providing that information to me because they're receiving that information in their brain and conveying it to the rest of a military unit. Imagine the level of trust that has to happen in that context. It's not an extant piece of of technology that I look at the information and I decide for myself. It's essentially a person who is absorbing the information and then telling me and telling the unit here's what we're gonna do, here's where we're gonna go, here's how it's gonna happen, and it's all happening inside that person's brain. So it's a different way of it, that those other people are relying on technology that's being filtered through a human being at this point. So it's a very, it's a, as Peter said, I, we can't say it you know, enough, it's a game changer. It really is a game changer. And now put that in the context of we're working with another country's military, same thing. So they're getting information and technology that's filtered through our enhanced people, um, and they have to trust that. And what does that look like? So I want to I want to actually piggyback on something Diane saying. This word trust. So mm-hmm. one of the first what really started this whole study was an argument that we had. We that argument that you and I had. <laughs> How unusual! <laughs> it was a conversation. So, and it was fun, funny. I'm sure. <laughs> The problem was is that the conversation that Diane and I had escalated to a whole room talking about, at the time, a Chinese researcher had genetically altered the embryo of an individual, which is an ethical red line. And there had also been a previous study out of China that they had increased the muscle mass of a dog to make the super dog. And, and there was a general line of, of discussion about the fact that some countries had ethical boundaries that the United States was unwilling to cross. And then we realized that we didn't really know whether it was the state-sponsored idea or whether it was just individuals. And, and then we asked ourselves, well, what, what is the willingness of a Western country or an Eastern country to adopt a, a cyborg? So we started to look out there and we found uh, one study inside only the United States that actually tackled that. It was by um, uh, the Pew Research Institute. And we, we actually asked, we went and we visited Carrie Funk and she ran that study. And they, uh, they interviewed like 4,726 individuals and they asked them, they're like, what do you think about technology and how scared are you and are you excited? And ultimately what they found was is that the majority of them were um, wary of these uh, breakthroughs and they were concerned about where the, these things were going and that that concern was tracked to some extent with their awareness of the technology and the more they knew about it, the less were likely they were to be concerned. And also uh, tracked with their religious affiliations. And um, the more religious people were, the more they tended to have ethical uh, boundaries. And, and I think Diane talked about our interoperability with our NATO allies. And so from a military standpoint, um, if, we in, if we adopt an enhancement, but our NATO allies refuse to allow us to be interoperable with them, to, to move our troops through their areas, then that was something that the Department of Defense needed to be concerned with. Right. Um, and 
the likely conversation, and I don't suggest that we go down this lane today. I think it's a whole conversation that, that you might want to pursue in and of itself is how do you have a society in which some people are operating at a higher level all the time and what does that imbalance in performance do to the dynamic between the two populations? And so if you look historically in the past, anytime there's been uh, an imbalance in, in performance, that's created resentment. And the best place to go for that, we realized, was media, movies, literature, music, poetry. And when you look there, oftentimes these cyborg technologies are perceived in a dystopian manner. There's a fear. There's a feeling that when you integrate man and machine together, there's a loss of soul and compassion, and that that leads to inadvertent technological consequences. Frankenstein the Terminator was the way we talked about it. And so if we're going to be interoperable with our NATO allies, if we're going to adopt these technologies, we have to realize that the society has to be accepting of these technologies. It can't be something that the Department of Defense does on its own, in a vacuum, irrespective of what society is willing to accept and what the global community at large will perceive of that endeavor. Well, that's profound, and I, I think that's as strong a note as any to end on. Dr. Dulles, do you have any parting thoughts as well? No, I, I think Peter really summed it up nicely. This, is, this has been a pleasure um, talking about this. It's been a great conversation. It has. I am fascinated and frightened at the same time. So thank you both so much for your insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay. So that was part one of the enhancements that they plan to do. Um, I have some information I need to pass along. Um, it seems that Celestalum's, um site has gone away so everything that I had on her site actually is gone from my computer um, I remembered who she talked to and so that's about the only way that I'm going to be able to get any information is to go to those people's site and get their the information that they have on her Um, now there was a second half of this, where did I put it, here it is, this is part two. Use amphetamines uh, for, for endurance, and that's been going on a long time. In World War One, the Brits, uh, the British uh, mixed rum and cocaine to kind of get the troops motivated to go over the top. Oh my goodness. Uh, my favorite World War Two, you know, enhancement story is... Uh, the Germans, you know, before the invasion of France, you know, they had this doctrinal innovation called Blitzkrieg, where they grouped the armor together to take advantage of its speed. And they needed for the invasion to be successful to get to Sedan within three days. But even with the faster Panzers and motorized vehicles, it would still take five days. The German medical corps, uh, the chief of medical officer, came up with this idea. They had been prescribing per pervitin, which is a kind of crystal meth. Uh, it was kind of commercially available in Germany as a pick-me-up. But they made it pure and uh, gave it to troops in Poland. It kind of worked out. And so they distributed 25 million tablets to the soldiers invading France. And they crashed the Ardennes in three days. Staff cars got, uh, uh, got out ahead of the uh, actual armored units. There's one great story of Rommel running around 
ahead of enemy, behind enemy lines in a staff car, just with everybody, you know, amped up. And the French saw the staff car and saw, oh my gosh, you know, they've crashed through our lines. We better retreat and reconsolidate. And so French units were retreating when they didn't really have to, even before they had fully engaged uh, German forces. The, the doctrinal innovation of Blitzkrieg is, you know, it was certainly a, a key to that, but it would not have happened. Probably not been as successful. History might have turned out a little differently had it not been for the use of that kind of enhancement. So it's been going on a long time. In terms of some of the other tech, more advanced technologies, in terms of uh, you know chips and brains and those kind of interventions, yeah, it's uh, that's probably way off before we figured out how to really integrate it in a practical way. That's really good insight. That this is really a continuation of something that's been going on for decades, and I had no idea about that story, which is just amazing. So, dialing in this this conversation, I guess uh, Dr. Feth, I'll stay with you for a second. Speaking specifically of domestic concerns and issues within the U.S. military, what are the most pressing, most immediate ethical questions that come to mind that you believe we need to answer as these technologies mature and emerge, particularly the ones that are more invasive, more kind of along the lines of what people call the, the cyborg soldier. Yeah, well, I mean, you may have to clarify a little bit what you mean by domestic concerns. Uh, but for instance, one might be, uh, let's say we enhance veterans and I mean, soldiers in a way that gives them greater memory, faster cognitive speeds, uh, greater cognitive capacity, and they get out of the army more than wherever yeah, they, they leave the service. What, you know, how does that affect society? You know, if they're more competitive for certain jobs, then civilians are going to be displaced from those jobs. That will be disrupted. On the flip side, what if those enhancements have long-term negative effects? Who's paying for that veteran's care? Well, presumably the Veterans Administration, but that's a, a significant cost that can be disruptive and that society would also have to bear. Dr. Barrett, do you have any additional thoughts on biggest issues? Some of the big, big worries involve uh, not really the invasiveness per se, um, but just the effects um, of these enhancements on soldiers and um, others in, in, uh, in society. The, the concerns revolve around both the type of enhancement and also the degree of enhancement. So on the type of enhancement, consider the possibility that uh, you could make soldiers extremely fearless and aggressive. That sounds, on its face, uh, fairly good. And I would call those psychological enhancements. But you could run into some real problems in those situations. You, you would be compromising, I think, the, the freedom and the safety of the soldier. And then you're going to also expose uh, the mission and citizens to undue risk. So that's a concern uh, involved with uh, the type of enhancement. And then a lot of the other discussions have to do with the the degree of enhancements. So you have these so-called extreme enhancements that could affect the soldier and also others. On the side of the soldier, there are a couple different arguments out there about how um, extreme improvements, say, to intelligence, uh, cognitive capacities might harm soldiers. Uh, I think the one that uh, really resonates with me was offered, as I recall, by Michael Sandel, political philosopher at Harvard. And his basic point is that limits the argument goes, are beneficial for the individual. They promote inter interdependence and humility, and those are constitutive of human flourishing. And when you take away those limits, you might end up with people, soldiers, who are extremely narcissistic and uh, self-centered, superior in their attitude, and that in itself is not fulfilling for that person. So that's, um, that's one issue. You could argue that because soldiers are so necessary for survival, and because we have an all-volunteer all force, then you know they're consenting to this harm. But nevertheless, you might want to uh, consider whether it would be 
worth it uh, in all situations. So that's a degree-related harm to soldiers. And then I can say more about the way societies would be affected a little bit later. I'm interested in, you bring up the way that soldiers might morally uh, or you know, be affected pertaining to their character. How might you sort of fence in that, you know, if you, you are the U.S. military and you're concerned about these things? Or how might you prepare soldiers for that eventuality that they might get technology that, that makes them behave differently and, and fundamentally alters their, their character or their outlook on the world? Um, well, just really briefly, I'll let Tony jump in, too. The, um, I mean, one possibility is that you could uh, create these drugs so that they're reversible. Um, so you could take away that, um, that cognitive enhancement uh, that is making them somewhat superior and narcissistic. But th- there might be psychological issues associated with the reversal issues. So those might out- outweigh the possibility of uh, uh, reversing them. And then you could just give them uh, to the soldiers only when they're going operational, say. So they wouldn't be like this all the time. But then there's a risk there, too, because they haven't been trained um, in that state, and that could create some unintended bad consequences. Um, those are just a couple of things that come to mind that you could do to fence in this this problem for the individual, but there are costs associated with those too. Yeah, I think what I'd chime in with, uh, I'd add just two points. One of the things that I think is important from the beginning of when you're developing these technologies to take this into account now. Before you start fielding the drug, you know, the, the enhancement, whatever it is, if you think it's going to affect the character, have those interventions ready, whatever they might be. And if you can't develop those interventions, you may have to rethink whether or not you want to field it or utilize it or not. And talk about you know what you might consider when you're doing that. But also just want to echo um, Ed's point on reversibility and the possible after effects. I, some of the uh, scientists I've talked to like to point out that no enhancement is reversible because you remember what it was like to have that capability. And so that can bring on its own kind of uh, pain or discomfort or uh, psychological pain or discomfort on its own. So that's that's something you also have to consider because a lot of folks will say, well, we're developing it so it'll be reversible. And that takes away the ethical concern, but it doesn't minimize it or mitigate it, but it, it certainly doesn't take it away. Right. So you talk about working ahead ethically on some of these issues before these sort of enhancements are really mainstream. And I'm struggling to sort of think of an analogous situation in which the U.S. military was fully able to anticipate the ethical and philosophical question that came with the introduction of a game-changing new technology. I'm thinking about how deeply immersed we're becoming in unmanned and drone warfare and the many gray areas that exist around kill decisions, who we target and how, who's in the room when these decisions are made. So how do military ethicists help get ahead of the conversation in a meaningful way? Well, I mean, with the, we, the military has become, I think, pretty wise in that it creates positions like mine and like Tony's. So there are within the system, especially at the staff and war colleges, but I'm in an academy. There are people with military experience, too. That, that do try to do a lot of this thinking in advance. So we keep track of the ways war is going to be waged and not war and then uh, think through the ethical issues associated with those new situations and there are a lot of conferences that go on uh, every year on these issues uh, with the relevant players 
and we try to reach out to not just other academics, but but uh, operators, people who work in industry and think tanks and governments. So there's this conversation is, is fairly uh, robust, at least in the United States. And I've actually gotten a lot of feedback from Europeans and Asians that say, um, this conversation in the U.S. military is really unique. The U.S. military basically says whatever they think. They, they're not restricted at all in posing these possibilities and debating them. So it's a very lively uh, um, situation that's been created, and it's, it's very helpful. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Hope Hodge Sec, interrupting my own podcast to make sure that you're signed up for Military.com's free newsletters. We just launched a new one, At Ease, all about military entertainment news. You can also sign up for active duty and veteran newsletters with insider information specific to your service, as well as ones focused on crucial topics like finance, jobs, and pay. Go to military.com and select Login in the upper right-hand corner to register for free and get started. All right, back to the show. The decision makers, you know, the people with brass on their shoulders or the people developing these technologies, do they generally listen? I mean, are they willing to, to countenance the should we do this and not just the can we do this? You want me to say that or you? No, go ahead, Tony. The smart ones do. <laughs> <laughs> the smart ones do. The, uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, I think if you look at, you know, AI development, I think we should, we actually get pretty, should get pretty high marks for that. The Defense Innovation Board and the Joint Staff and others have set up, you know, specific organizations to look specific at the ethics of AI as this technology is coming online. And if you review those documents, they're pretty good. Uh, you know, nothing's ever going to be perfect and you're always going to have new facts will come up and you, you know, new considerations. But I think there, I mean, I so I, I think there's hope. I'd also underscore when it, when it comes to bioenhancements, it may not be as hard as we think it is because you may not catch everything, but uh, you can catch some things. So, you know, go back to the story of uh, the nerve agent antidote or vaccine that they gave us in the Persian Gulf War, which I was a recipient. Mm. Uh, as I was doing research for my work on this, I learned that they, they basically overrode uh, the guidelines on giving it to soldiers without their consent. Uh, because of the exigencies of that particular situation. The idea being that, well, we really can't get everybody's consent. Uh, and if they really know it was good for them, they'd rather be inoculated against the nerve agent than not. But what you learn is that... Uh... Okay, it's... Um... It's going around in circles. It's buffering. Uh, and we just don't have time okay. to test it. But then you learn that they had been stockpiling the drug for that use for over for six years previously and didn't conduct any tests in the interim. So that's why if you're thinking about this use, start the test, consider the ethical issues, consider those implications early on, and you'll get, you know, you'll get a better result. Like I said, I think with AI you're seeing you're seeing some of that thinking take hold, for which Ed Barrett gets complete credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a conference every year at the Naval Academy called the McCain Conference, and, and it's on a different topic like this every year. And, and Tony is, comes every year and usually speaks. So, uh, so there's a very there's a very robust group in the United States, and we pull in people from Europe and Asia and, and other places. So it's it's ongoing. I'd say it's really developed uh, over the last what maybe twenty years, Tony. Yeah, I mean, it was deliberate. I mean, so you started off with a conference of 
basically philosophers and other interested folks associated with the military academies all formed a group that you know wanted to focus on ethical issues and that's just broadened into that particular group that you know ed's a part of you know has branches all over the world and uh so yeah no i think you the military the the military certainly does i think take into account or the the ethical issues but you're right to point out that sometimes necessity gets the better of us uh and depending on how we interpret the urgency of the situation we can get ahead of ourselves and that's again why i go back to you know start early you know do ethics early and often and that's the thing to watch out for uh the other thing to watch out for is as your is where that urgency is coming from are the bad guys developing one too what happens if they get it and we don't you know and i think that's part of the ethical consideration if you're developing it for its own sake just to have an advantage you got to at least think twice about fielding it maybe even think three times about doing it in the first place it changes when it's to offset or to prevent being at a disadvantage but you kind of that's one of the ways you start to have to think about these kinds of technologies before you even start developing them and certainly before you start fielding well you're anticipating my line of questioning there but before we we get into that aspect of things dr faf i think you brought this up so i want to pull on this thread a little bit more how do you anticipate free will will come into the equation so you know right now you can't choose whether or not to carry an m4 rifle or your m203 grenade launcher if you're a grenadier basically you carry what's issued to you should troops have the choice of whether or not to get bio enhanced whether it's uh, chemically or an implant anything like that how would you expect that conversation as well to affect the military socially yeah no that's a really good question and it kind of the answer kind of goes something like this now again be specific about what we're talking in terms of enhancements you know a powered suit that really doesn't you know it has no medical implications or it doesn't involve a medical intervention or boots that have springs on them to enhance you know running and dumping i don't see those as as terribly ethically problematic What's new about or what, what makes enhancements concerning is when you have some kind of medical intervention into the body that changes the body somehow. And so what you do when you when when you do that with a soldier, you go you're basically saying, "Okay, here's a trade. I can give you this enhancement for which there may be long-term side effects, but it will prevent your uh, near-term demise or a serious injury in combat." Uh what does the soldier say? Well, you've kind of put the soldier you're giving the soldier an offer uh, he or she cannot refuse. Hmm. I mean, the only rational thing is to take the enhancement uh, almost regardless of what the long term effects might be depending on what the probabilities of each outcome are so like with the uh, nerve agent you know vaccine while there are side effects you know it was very low in the populations that i might consent to take that risk but all things being equal you can place uh, soldiers in a kind of coercive uh, situation uh which i think you have to watch out for one way of handling it is well if someone doesn't take the enhancement well they don't get exposed to the same risk but even that's an imperfect solution for obvious reasons a that may not really be an option like the nerve agent antidote but the other thing is even if that were an option there's a second order effect in terms of risk and fairness to the enhanced soldier because while that enhancement may make them more resilient and more survivable and more lethal on the battlefield it also makes it more likely they'll be used and depending on how many iterations of that there might be getting the enhancement might over long term make them less survivable or more or more likely to be severely injured And so that's the kinds of things you have to take into account when you're constructing a policy about how to distribute these things. Dr. Barrett, do you have any thoughts to add on that one? No, that was that was really interesting. Uh, there, there there would be these calm external pressures to enhance. I think to to those then you could also add I'll just call them internal pressures in certain groups. People who are extremely young are much more open to taking risks and therefore um you you have to wonder how much informed consent uh, they're they're giving um it's just kind of natural that they would say yes this sounds cool this sounds and and 
enhancing and I'm going to take it without considering like somebody who's a little bit older who's seeing that, that bad things can happen might take. I just want to note too that there are, there are cultural differences. I teach military ethics uh, over in France occasionally and we discuss human enhancement. Uh, this is with the French army and the French soldiers are very um, close to this. They do, they do not want to be enhanced. Um, on the other hand, the American youth that I've talked to, the, uh, the midshipmen, for example, they want the enhancements. <laughs> so there are cultural differences, too. And I don't know exactly how to explain them. <laughs> well, that's a great segue. And I think we'll stick with you, Dr. Barrett, for a second. So to talk about the international consequences of bioenhancement, we had sort of a sidebar about this a couple of weeks ago. First, 